You're listening to The Music Tricked Me, a podcast by French recording engineer Elise Mollet, where music insiders talk about their experience in the industry and all the tricks they've learned along the way. The Music Tricked Me Hi, Rory. Thanks for joining us today on The Music Trick Me. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and I'm very excited to share your stories and insights on the industry, as we've been working together for almost two years, and you still haven't managed to get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's always been captivating to hear you talking about your past and present experiences. Your career has been very varied as well. You do a lot as a mixing engineer, but you also produce, you sometimes write, and you have now expanded your setup to include Dolby Atmos. Mm -hmm. You work with both labels and unsigned artists. You lived and worked both in London and in Dublin. And you started working in the 90s when the industry was working very differently. So we have plenty that we can talk about. Could you give us first a quick overview of your career path, please? Sure. I went to London in 1990 from Ireland. I grew up here in Ireland. Went to London when I was 20, 21. And started to work at Metropolis Studios in Chiswick in West London around about the middle of 1991. Uh, Metropolis was a brilliant studio really to start off in. It was at a very kind of high level in terms of the clients that we would have in there in the early years. Like in the first few weeks that I was at Metropolis, the first day I walked in, it was with, with Phil Manzanera, who was the guitar player from Roxy Music. And, you know, a few weeks after that, we were in with Brian May and, and uh, Roger Taylor from Queen. And, you know, in that first year, we had, you know, Robert Plant and like some of the artists that we had in were the very highest level. So it was pretty fascinating for a very junior assistant to kind of see all of that. So I worked there as an assistant through until about 94. Whenever I guess I probably started the engineer from about 94 as a house engineer then from, from 94 to about 97. And then left and went freelance from 97 onwards. So I engineered up until about 2000, 2001, and then a few things happened and I had an opportunity to do some writing for George Michael and off the back of that, I got a publishing deal and continued then to work with George for the next four or five years. And I'd I'd almost sort of stopped thinking like an engineer completely. I remember because at the time we were working a lot in air studios and I remember seeing the, the air engineers and almost being completely separated from it which was nice but then around about 2006 2007 I kind of felt the urge to change it back and kind of I wanted to sort of start mixing records a bit more and I know that later you want to talk about families and all the rest but there was an element of that involved in kind of changing tracks and, and taking control of my own time so sort of started to focus on mix projects more I sort of set up a little mix room by 2007 and then around about 2016, 2017, kind of mainly for family reasons, wanted to try and get out of London and get back to the Emerald Isle mm-hmm. uh, and came back with family to Dublin and set up here in Camden Studios. So taking it back to when you were working in Metropolis Studios in London, you were in one of the biggest hubs of the music industry in the 90s. So you have points of comparison between the environment then and the environment now. So what can you tell us about that? 
You know, I think hub is a really good word because, you know, those, those kind of bigger studio complexes where there was four or five or six rooms, you know, Metropolis had five studios, two or three good sized programming rooms and three or four mastering rooms. And well, there was more of a team effort. Typically, there'd be a producer, there'd be an engineer, there'd be an assistant, there would be a second assistant quite often. It would be the maintenance department. like So the maintenance guy sometimes would be almost like a third assistant because they would be in and out of the control rooms, you know, 10 times a day, making sure things were ticking over. And also there'd be, you know, often a programmer. So the guy that would come with his samplers and keyboards and the MIDI rig. You know, so before an artist or any musicians have turned up, you've already got five or six people who are part of the production team. Mm. You know, there was maybe a bit more of a sense of there being a team there, a bit of mm. st structure, you know, and a hierarchy, if you like. So I think going in as an assistant, you see all that ab above you kind of thing. You see all that to ahead of you and you've got something to work towards, you know. So when you see the kind of more senior engineer, the guy who sat there for 30 years making amazing records or whatever, you, you've immediately got a, a sort of a focal point, something to aspire to or someone to learn from. I think your generation are in danger of missing out on the sort of mentorship that mm. naturally came in that environment. You know, an awful lot of music is made these days by people individually in a room. So, you know, we're missing out on that a little bit, but maybe that's why, you know, the podcasts and things are important. On the, the flip side, you know, there's access to, you know, that was a very exclusive little club, wasn't it? If you're in that club, then great. But if you weren't, then you kind of, you know, the door was shut. Mm. Whereas now there's positives, obviously, with social media and the connectivity of all of that. It's easier for people to kind of try and reach out and get in touch with their favorite producer or their favorite artist or engineer or whatever and, and kind of make contact. So swings and roundabouts. <laughs> for sure. And it's good to bring that uh, positive input to it as well. There is that glamorous vision that everything was better before. Can you tell us what wasn't great before? Uh, yeah, I mean... Or maybe everything was better before. <laughs> it was all better. Tell us the truth. It's, it's hard for me to have perspective completely of what it's like now because I'm not where you are now. But for us then, um, it was it was very competitive. It was, it was still as competitive as it is now. You know, it was still it was very difficult to get a job in a studio. It wasn't a given that you would get a job. So it was competitive from the off but once you then did get into a good studio then the the expectation in terms of the amount of hours and the amount of time and dedication that you were expected to put into every day was pretty huge the assistant would be there before anyone else turned up and would be the last person out the door so you know if a typical session was a 12-hour session which would be what you know how the studios would be sold you know, if it started at 11, you've, you're in at 10 and finishes at 11, they run over an extra hour or two. You're lucky to be out of there before 1 or, or, or 2 a.m., like pretty much every day. So, you know, it was a case of getting a taxi home, falling into bed, sleeping for six or seven hours, getting up and getting straight back into the studio. And that went on for weeks and months and, and mm. ultimately years. So th these days now, an assistant might say to me, oh, I've, I've got a gig tonight, I want to go and play in it or... I've got a dinner with my friends or and, and they might have a bit of a social life. I, I think for us 30 years ago, there was zero social life because mm -hmm. it just it, it wasn't okay 
to leave the session. You just never would have left the session. You know, you had to, you were there from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of it. So it was more hardcore. I don't think people really, it was only, it was only people who were in the thick of it really grasped, you know, the ridiculous kind of length of hours that we used to do. You know, a, fr a friend of mine once collapsed in the, you know, in the library. He was setting up a microphone. And he hadn't slept for two days or something. And he just collapsed on the floor. And the producer just didn't even go in to check on him. The producer rang the studio manager and said, uh, I need a new assistant. I just killed this one. <laughs> Boof, hung up, you know. Was and he actually okay? He was fine. He was sent <laughs> home and he had to sleep for 24 hours. And then came back in the next day and just got on with it. But, you know, we, we really were kind of worked to exhaustion in, in a lot of cases. It was almost this idea that you just had to tough that out, you know. Yeah. And, and, and the studio manager had very little sympathy for it it's like sorry that's the gig you got to do it maybe it maybe it built character maybe it sort of built a certain type of mental strength to be able to kind of get through that but um but it was pretty hardcore well thanks for sharing that i think it's good and important to highlight that mental health is more important nowadays and people should respect more of their boundaries that's definitely something i want to talk about in the podcast as well so mm -hmm. i appreciate you sharing that story do you feel like nowadays, do you feel the quality of the music has lowered a little bit because people can't afford anymore to have long sessions? You worked on, you know, uh, recording sessions that were going on for weeks, months, mixing sessions that went on for that same amount of time. Do you feel the quality of the music nowadays has changed because of that and artists are have to think about music as a business more? Uh, I'm not sure if artistically it's hugely different. I think there's just a different type of record being made these days. You could pick at it and say that records sounded better back then, but there's some fantastic records around mm -hmm. these days that still sound great. If anything, artists have got more freedom now to be creative and to kind of explore with technology being what it is. You know, there's an awful lot that they can do before they ever have to come into a studio. Mm -hmm. In terms of the quality of records being made, there was more musicians involved in making records back then. You know, it was more about getting uh, a group of players into a room. And an engineer's job was a little bit more, a lot more about trying to capture what was happening in the room. The role of an engineer has changed a lot from then. For me, that was like a really exciting part of it. You know, the, the idea of getting four or five guys in a room and then sort of seeing the energy work between them and, and making it sound good and making it sound good enough or kind of right whereby they then are kind of encouraged by it and get excited by it so there was there was a sort of a a spontaneity to it or you know we would all kind of work off each other a little bit more you might start the day and you might end up somewhere different than you thought you were going to end up because it's five or six people in a room you know what i mean it's not it's not a computer so the process was quite different, I suppose. Mm. But, you know, there's different styles and different genres and there's there's always there's a very kind of big, wide open um, book of of approaches to making records. So. Mm. It's kind of funny for me to imagine you as a, an assistant engineer because I have been your assistant and uh, it's always funny to try to picture whoever is your mentor, like where they have started themselves. Um, I've always been wondering... The role slash importance of the assistant engineer, has it changed over the years? And can you tell us more about also when you first started to think about having an assistant, um, an assistant mixing engineer? Um, 
Yep, sure. So the role of an assistant has always been, certainly was back then, pretty critical. You know, a good assistant would keep the whole session running smoothly and would be worth their weight in gold, really, especially for the big studios where by the engineer quite often would be a freelancer. So they would come in and the assistant would be the kind of main guy that would be able to sort of show him the ropes and make sure he knew his way around or he or she would know their way around the console, although mostly it was his, I must say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the assistant's role was pretty critical, really. And there's things about what a good assistant was back then, which have never changed, where they're still the same now, you know. And one of the things that we used to always try and do as an assistant was to be able to kind of read what was happening in the room and kind of preempt what was about to happen. You know, be a fly on the wall and, and realise that the producer probably wants to do a different vocal take in a different room. And as as the assistant, without having been asked, you might be able to sort of slip off and get things set up so that by the time the engineer turns around and says, can we set up a vocal mic, it's already set up and you're ready to go. You know, so that kind of anticipation or that ability to read the session and read the room was always a, a great trait to have as an assistant. And I think that's still the same now if you're in that in any kind of session you know if you're coming in as an assistant it's not okay just to be sort of sat in the kitchen on your phone flicking through instagram or whatever when you could be just actually paying attention to what's happening in the studio it might mm. seem like nothing's happening but there's lots happening you know you can kind of pick up on vibes maybe a, the singer's not feeling very kind of confident about what they're about to have to do or whatever and you can make sure they've got a cup of tea or make their recording environment a bit cozy or whatever it is, but just being able to anticipate and read the room is a really important sort of aspect to being a a good assistant. So that's assistance in a recording session. Is it much different to have a mixing assistant? Probably not that different. I think even like way back, you know, an assistant, like a mix assistant's role would have been very similar to what it is now. You know, these days you've got to get a session prepped. If I ask you to get a session set up, you know how I want it set up. In the same way, back then, an engineer would have his layout on the console in a certain way. So the assistant's job would be to initially kind of get it up and running on the console, get everything laid out exactly the way that particular engineer would, would want it to be. And then just make sure that when he walks in the door, he's ready to press, sit down and press play and start mixing. And, and literally that's what would happen. You know, the guy would come in and it's like, right, everything cool. He's got his coffee ready to go mm-hmm. and presses play and starts mixing. So if the session was due to start at 11 a.m., by 10 past 11, he started his mix already. And then that's the beginning of the of the mix process. But then through the course of it, in a similar kind of way, you know, you can kind of sometimes gently sort of have a few things ready. You might think, oh, maybe he'll, he'll want to go out to some pedals and do some processing like this or get the amp set up, reamp something or whatever. So there's a little bit that an assistant can sort of nurture through the course of a mix. And then when it comes to finishing it, you know, the big part of the, the end of a mix back in the day would have been getting the recall done and making sure that it was an accurate recall. So you had to recall like the entire room, every piece of gear, every patch and, you know, everything that was going on with the console. Not everyone these days needs a recall, but for me, I still use outboard. So I, you know, it's still a fairly important part of my workflow that I'm, that I'm able to get a mix back two days or a week or a year later. You know, a good mix assistant is on top of all of that, 
and uh, we'll have a good sort of read on how a mix engineer will kind of work and, and how he wants to work. When did you get your first assistant? When did you realize you needed an assistant? Um, I think there was a, a sort of a particular point when um, I used to have a whiteboard up in my room and I would just write up the projects or the tracks that I had to get mixed. And I got to one point when the board was full <laughs> and I thought, maybe I need some help. And my, I think it was my manager actually at the time, Zita, who uh, said that we need to get you an assistant. <laughs> and she interviewed or she she put the, the word out. I don't know how she did it actually. Maybe she did an advertisement somewhere or just not actually sure. But anyway, she whittled it down to two or three people and sent me a few CVs. I, I picked one out and it was Daniel. Daniel came up and he spent the next couple of years working with me, which was nice. The reason I kind of, I think the reason that I kind of picked Daniel out was because he liked the Blue Nile. I think that was even on a CV, <laughs> possibly the Flaming Lips as well. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's okay. He'll he'll do. <laughs> I didn't realize that uh, a manager could be the first person to be like, maybe you could do it with an assistant. And uh, because you were first payway in a studio, which is like not a thing anymore, it seems, or very rarely. And then you went into being freelance and then you hired a manager. Can you tell us about those different steps throughout well, your career? I think I think it's still the same now, really, with a lot of big studios. There are even, you know, the kind of medium-sized studios, if there's any left, there was always a tendency, and there still is, to, to kind of like, you know, you can't stay as a house engineer forever. They kind of want people to move on so to help with that transition quite often a lot of studios would have an in-house management wing or arm or someone that would look after the, their engineers and represent them so that's still the same now mm. in a lot of the studios like air and my local and whatever and it was the same at metropolis so the step from being on the paye of the studio to becoming freelance was it was, it was really just you know you could make three times as much money as a freelancer so there was incentive for you as the engineer and there was also incentive then for the studio manager to represent you outside of that because they would take their 20% cut. So for me, I kind of moved um, probably still a lot of the projects that I was working on were probably still at Metropolis, but I just wasn't being paid directly from them, but but still being managed by them. So I think that sort of transition is still the case for a lot of engineers mm. if you come through that studio route. Mm. What else can a manager do for you? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is that they can just take care of a lot of the phone calls, the booking, the invoicing, agreeing a price. Sometimes it's very difficult to kind of talk about money with an artist. If an artist comes to you and says, you know, you, you, ideally you don't really want to have that conversation. You just want to talk about the record that you're going to make. And if you can then say, oh, have a word with the manager about all the other stuff then it's nice to deflect that and not kind of worry about it too much. So it kind of keeps, it helps a lot to sort of keep that conversation out of the creative environment. And then also managers tend to dig their heels in a bit more in terms of, of price and rate. So if a manager says, no, his rate's 300 quid a day, then they'll be less inclined to, to buckle on that and kind of do it for less. Especially if a manager then is doing a deal with another manager, then they're doing their thing and it's separate from our thing. So it's definitely useful. Again, brings a level of maybe professionalism to the process that helps and a bit of structure to it. But also 
ideally a manager should open a few doors in terms of gigs that you wouldn't otherwise get. Uh, they might be able to put your name out there or kind of suggest you for certain gigs that, that you yourself might not put yourself forward for. A good manager hopefully would bring some extra work in. Mm -hmm. But they don't, they don't always. And, it's, you know, you can't rely on a manager to do that. I think ultimately, you know, you need to generate the work and they need to manage it. You know, if you get busy and you've got lots of different projects on the go and there's lots of different phone calls and emails and all the rest, to, to not have to worry about any of that, there isn't really not enough time in the day to, to deal with it. And it's, you know, they, typically it's 20% that a manager would take and it's it's worth it's worth it, you know, without a doubt for me anyway. Thanks. That's making it way clearer in my head. Um, another step in sound engineer's life is when they want to start a family as well. What were the main challenges? How have you managed in your career to start a family? Well, I think like every scenario like that is going to be different. Maybe the first thing is to to know that before you start a family that your your partner that you're with, if you're thinking about having children, that they are completely aware of the kind of lifestyle that we end up having, you know, which is a little bit unpredictable. Quite often you'd be working late nights. Um, you know, you, you're not going to be home for six o'clock every night having your tea. So for, for your partner to, to really kind of get a good grasp of that and really kind of understand that that's the sort of lifestyle of it and for them to be able to kind of cope with that is an important part of it before you kind of throw yourself into that world of having kids. So that I think that's pretty important, you know, to be with the right person without getting too kind of uh, <laughs> heavy about it. But then you do need to be in control a little bit of your time. So for me personally, part of my incentive to set up a little mix room and kind of start focusing on, on mixing records was because there was a baby on the way kind of thing. So my first mix room was seven minutes walk from our flat. You know, I could, I could fit my studio time around baby time <laughs> you know so that my wife didn't feel completely abandoned mm -hmm. or if she did feel like she'd had enough I was only ever like a 10 minute stroll away and could come back so if you, you can sort of try and or you sort of maybe have to sort of try and structure it in a way that you've got that flexibility um, and you know having a good clear plan of attack it is one of the good thing about our job is the flexibility that we can have because a lot of parents can't have the same holidays as the school holidays, for example. But in your case, you can take two months off in July and August if you want because you're your own boss. Yeah, um, completely. You know, you, that flexibility is a useful thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to get a little bit less emotional and talk more <laughs> about gear. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good to talk about family. It's important. I think for women especially, the question can come a bit earlier than men, obviously. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. They can be more pressure. But let's talk about gear. <laughs> I approached you to become your assistant because I saw on your website that you were working hybrid, meaning that you were working in the box, but you also had analog gear. Um, I didn't want to leave just yet the analog world uh, where I just came from. A lot of people out there have this burning question of like, why in your case you decided to keep analog gear? Um, I don't know. It's, it's sort of just maybe it's a little bit of comfort having analog gear near me or whatever. But, you know, one of the things that I kind of never really loved about B 
big Pro Tools mix sessions was looking at it and seeing just tons and tons and tons of plugins and tons of processing. Mm. And what I would find quite often <clears throat> was you you get a session and it would have like six plugins on it. I'd take them all off and put in one nice compressor, like analog compressor, and it would just sound better. You know, there's there's a real kind of easy tendency for people to just completely overprocess things in terms of digital plugins. And that's a real pitfall, I think, or a danger. You know, you can you think you're kind of adding something special or whatever, but you're just kind of degrading the quality of of the signal slowly but surely and i think it's with less processing it's easier to get to the end result that i want to get using bits of analog gear i don't use it i don't use tons of it but you know there's usually be three or four or five bits of gear on a mix so i can get there quicker with the analog gear do you use your analog equipment on the key components of your mix like the main vocals yeah. and the the bass like the the foundation of your mix yeah definitely always on a vocal mm. i pretty much always have a some sort of analog compressor or two on the on the vocal and similarly with the bass and then there's a few nice kind of analog just some chains that you can send stuff to you know like the culture vulture or like the boiler i really like the the little bridge farm boiler or you know just some compressors like that where you can really slam them and send stuff to a kind of a slam bus. And then the sort of tape echoes sometimes can mm. be fantastic as well, just for a very quick, like you just switch them on and they immediately sound good and oh, immediately yeah. bring a little bit of character <laughs> and bring a little bit of kind of something that you just kind of, that sort of satisfies. And also I think it's just a bit of fun as well. You know, it's just like, I just, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to just have my my hand permanently attached to a mouse. Uh, you know, I want to I want to use bits of gear. But that was always the thing. You know, I think like typically again going back, it was a much more of a physical thing that we would, you know, to mix on a console. You'd be on your feet going from one end to the other. It was there'd be there'd be an urgency to it. You know, you'd be up, and you'd be kind of working on the console. And there's something about that whereby you're sort of stuck in your seat now with a mouse and a keyboard. That's a little bit sort of stagnant. So maybe having the gear there kind of helps there's probably a you know relatively big chunk of it that's psychological but i think there's more to it than that it's not just psychological there's definitely kind of a sonic thing that it brings which is pleasing um well i was going to ask because there's everyone saying analog gear is more musical it's less harsh do you think it's the case with your equipment yeah no i think like i was saying i think it's very easy for a lot of the digital plugins to kind of you know they they can look fantastic and give you the impression that they're doing something wonderful but they're just making taking something away from it ultimately whereas you know there's a few favorite bits of gear that i would go to like the la2a or whatever which just sound most of the time 90 percent of the time it's just it just works it just sounds better mm -hmm. and you know, whether it's musical or whether it's pleasing or whether it's warmth or whatever, you know, however you want to describe it, it just does its thing. Mm. And and it's a nice thing that it does. So, so yeah, musical, yeah, more musical. And you are actually known uh, to have a very musical approach to your mixing. And I think it's important to remind young engineers out there who can feel maybe deflated that more senior engineers or big studios have loads of amazing equipment and engineers are like, oh, it probably sounds good because of the equipment and I can't do that at home. I think you're always pushing people to develop their instinct and their musicality and their vibe rather than 
expand their equipment, right? Completely. I mean, equipment's really not that important. It's pretty amazing, really, what people can do now, you know, with a laptop and some plugins. You know, having the extra bit of gear or whatever is stops it from being too boring for me, but it's not important. You don't need it. You can totally do everything that you need to do with plugins and it can sound great. You know, I, I, sort of, I suppose I definitely come from that kind of school whereby like some of the engineers that I learned from would come at it from the approach of I don't care what microphones you got, you know, whatever I've got, I'll make it work, you know, and, and there's a creativity in that, you know, definitely not to get caught up in, oh, I have to have this piece of gear, I have to have that kind of microphone, I have to have this kind of console. You know, part of the fun of it really is in just making do with what you got and seeing what you can come up with. So uh, the gear is not all that important, certainly not at the beginning. You know, what's the classic expression? It's the ear, not the gear. <laughs> and you did prove that to me because we were preparing one day It was a remote vocal session, so we had to send a rough mix of our instrumental track for the other studio to track the uh, singer who was in London. And you were not exactly sure what plugins they would have, so you just used the basic stock plugins of Brutals. And in like 10 minutes, you made it sound good. I was like, well, yeah, it's definitely, he's not using any of his analog gear. He's just using the stock plugins and it sounds better than what I, uh, like a younger engineer would do uh, because it was your experience stock. And then on top of that, you were producing that album as well. And you just had the drums louder than a normal mix would have had it. But you knew that the drums would drive the punch and the delivery of the singer would benefit from drums being loud. That's what has always fascinated me working with you because you're such an instinctive person and you know what you know how to adapt the mixing to the need of the musicians mm -hmm. and even when you're producing and I'm engineering with you you're just like the headphone mixes yeah it's I'm not, it's, to be honest I've always I've always obsessed a little bit about headphone mixes <laughs> and what you send to an artist or a musician you know it's it's hugely important you know you completely change the, the performance depending on what they're hearing and they even the most experienced musicians or artists don't always realize that themselves and you know you can make the presumption that they uh, are going to get themselves a good balance in you know if you're using a cue box or something like that for them to kind of monitor and then you go in and have a listen to what they're listening to and it's just horrendous you know <laughs> So taking control for an engineer to take control of, of what an artist is listening to is kind of really important. But also like the, the instinct thing, getting back to that idea of working instinctively, I think that comes from working for years as a tracking engineer. We would have to kind of move very quickly between one song and another, you know, change reels, put a song up that you've been working on last week, very quickly get a balance on, on the board, Within five or ten minutes, you need to get that track up and working because the guitarist is tuned up and ready to go. He wants to do a guitar mm. overdub or whatever. I think it's different now. Obviously, you open up a Pro Tools session and it comes back exactly where you left it. Whereas on a console, it would be all over the place. So you you know you you'd constantly be chasing your tail trying to kind of get a balance back. But that is maybe where you know th that kind of classic approach to recording, whereby you put all the faders at zero, your monitor return faders at zero. And you, you, you record into that so that when you come back two weeks later and put all the faders back to zero, you've got your balance very close. So, you know, you very quickly realize the convenience of that and the kind of the importance of it. I heard that, yeah, during the tape days, 
you would become really good at doing rough mixes because you had to balance really quickly for the musicians or the producer or the A&R guy was exactly. coming in the room and he was like, oh, can I listen to that track you did yeah. yesterday? And you yeah. had to really quickly do a rough and mix. By the time you get to the first chorus, you've got to have it sounding good, mm. you know. Mm. And then the same, the same would go then for headphone balances. You know, mm. I think when you're, tra- when you're as a tracking engineer, I used to spend, you know, half the day with headphones on because you're changing the, the monitor balance for what the musicians are listening to rather than what's happening in the control room. And I would always prioritize that. You know, the first thing I'm listening to is the monitor balance, not what's happening in the control room. The producer would be like, sounds a bit shit. I'd be like, yeah, hang on a minute. You know, I don't care what you think right now. It's more important that the that the singer is getting the right balance, you know, and that's that's the priority. But that's kind of part of that flow, you know, flow of, a, of on a session, the energy of it, the the energy of lots of people in in the room and everyone pushing along at a different sort of pace. So you work at a different pace as an engineer. You learn to work faster and all of that. So yeah, I think you have to be instinctive, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> well, the other thing I like about you, not only you try to get musicians excited, but you also get quite excited when you get a, a mix. I like that the minute you get a track sent to you, you're just like, oh, that reminds me of that record that I love. Can we listen to it? And you just put it on and you're just like, it's cool, right? And you just love uh, making other people discover your favorite records. You get really inspired by other people. And I think you've mentioned several times how you've absorbed working in those big studios, having producers around you and you were constantly inspired by other people. And even if nowadays there's less bodies in the studio, uh, you work mainly alone or with your assistants now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can still feel this excitement and you find it in other ways, right? Yeah, well, you kind of, I think, like listening to references is a really good way to sort of try and get your head into a space of maybe what you want to try and do with a mix. So it might not always be the right thing, but it might be just some random little kind of thing that you hear that reminds you of a different track and then you kind of want to hear it. And then, yeah, that was an interesting thing as well, working in the bigger studio sort of environment one day to the next you could be working with completely different genres and be exposed to lots of different styles and genres of music like I remember doing some sort of dance type sessions in Studio D in Metropolis where the the DJs would come in and be like oh have you heard this have you heard such and such you know and it was almost like you're sort of almost kind of trying to get the energy going in the room and they would play stuff that you'd never heard of before and then you go oh what's that would mind hearing more of that mm. or even some of the kind of classic stuff you know I remember once um, I can't remember who the producer was but they were talking a lot about Stevie Wonder and I never really listened to Stevie Wonder and they're almost like you sorry you never listened to Stevie Wonder <laughs> like you shouldn't even be in this room you know so we went off home that night and listened to some Stevie Wonder you know and there was definitely kind of a lot of learning there about other artists and you can just be exposed to lots of things mm. It's important how influenced you are by your surroundings. I was watching that uh, McCartney 321 documentary and he, or even that Beatles book and in every Beatles documentary or book, they say they were so inspired by the American records that they were getting. So it's like getting inspired by something that's not familiar and it seems that's creating the best music. Yeah, and I think that's something like uh, people have always done that. You know, it's always been about listening to other people's records and and picking out the bits that you like mm-hmm. and sort of. It's also a way of it's like a shorthand in a way, isn't it? Because if you're speaking to an artist and they're like, well, "I can't really explain exactly what I want, but I can play you this record," and then you know, it's a, it's, it's the sort of shorthand way to communicate what you want to maybe get from something. And nowadays, how how do you get that inspiration? What 
how do you manage to stay fresh? I know your kids actually make you discover some music sometimes. Well, that's starting to happen. Yeah, my daughter's 14 now, so she's starting <laughs> to play stuff. We started watching the chart show on a Saturday night. Ooh, and nice. uh, compiling uh, Spotify playlists of our favorite tunes. <laughs> so that's been fun. But part of the problem that I've always had for years has been like finding the time to listen to stuff that you just want to listen to for the sake of it. You know, if you're in the studio for 14 hours a day listening to music, then you get in your car to drive home. You don't always want to listen to music. So finding the artists and finding the time to just listen to it for the enjoyment of it is a bit harder, you know, But I think they just find you in a way, don't they? Like sort of music that you like finds you. Oh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then yes. it's like, oh, what's that? Oh, I really like that. Yeah. You know? And it yeah. can be anything. It could yeah. be like a dance tune. It could be a pop tune. It could be something more left field than that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah. There's another thing that you like to remind younger engineers is that this industry is a lot about opportunities and connections. And when I started, when I was in uni, actually, all of my teachers were just like, it's 50% your skills, 50% who you are and who you meet, um, your personal skills as much as your technical skills. Can you tell us more about how you've seen it in your career that that one person that you met then led to another project, to another project? Well, everything, like every project I've probably ever done has, has kind of sparked from a chain of events or a chain of meetings or, or relationships like that. You know what I mean? You could sort of trace everything right back and there was always a knock-on project that, that, that the reason I did that was because I did such and such with that guy. What I do say to younger engineers coming in is like, you've no idea where, you know, it might seem like a sort of a, some maybe a, just a local band or a kind of a early sort of stages project now, but you've no idea where that's going to, come to five years from now so for that reason you should never ever be in a room and, and, and not be given it your all you know you should be given it everything all of the time because that's what will kind of fuel that journey if that makes sense it does it does and especially nowadays the lines are a bit more blurry i guess because they can be like uh, bedroom producers or like unsigned artists and you don't have this oh, they're signed to a big label, so I know that I, I need to give it my all. Or you, you never know what's going to happen even for like someone who's unsigned. And that's actually bringing me to one of my questions because you said that since moving back to Dublin, you started working a little bit more with unsigned artists, but you've worked and you still work with major labels. So I was really wondering what are the differences for you working for labels versus working with unsigned independent artists? I mean, in some respects, it's not really any different because you just, like, from, from a mixed point of view, it's not any different at all because, you know, I don't mix it any differently. I still do the same job. The, where it's different is in communication, how you communicate. There's a sort of a shorthand that's kind of there with label people because they've done it a gazillion times before. And I think quite often there's usually a bit of history. You know, if you've got a rapport with an A&R guy, you kind of know what they're after, you sort of know what they're going to want to hear. So sometimes you might get a one-line email from the A&R guy saying, here's this thing, mix it, uh, and you know kind of what he wants. Whereas I think with an independent artist, the communication has to be more nurtured. And you have to kind of maybe really try and understand what it is that the artist wants 
because they're maybe just a bit less experienced and maybe sometimes they have a false impression of what a mix can do. Quite often a lot of young artists think that a mix is going to somehow transform and make them sound like whoever, you know, and it's important to have that communication nice and open and, and lots of chats about what they're after mm. and kind of a good clear vision for, you know, what they expect. So expectations from a label are pretty preset. You know what they're going to expect. And unsigned artists, you know, you sort of need to sort of chat about that more. Mm. That's really the main difference. It's just about how you communicate, mm -hmm. I think. And do you encourage artists to get signed? Um, I think at the right stage in any kind of artist's career, if there's an opportunity to sign to a label, there's, you know, there's a point at which it kind of makes sense. You can definitely go too early and there's definitely a stage when, when you, you're not going to go any further unless you've got a good label behind you. So I think it's just all about picking the right moment, really. It's not always the right thing just to jump in at, at any major label deal, but you just need to kind of have a good, clear sort of understanding of who's involved. Mm -hmm. Well, luckily for you guys, there will be probably an episode about labels and getting signed. So we're hoping to bring more clarity to that uh, topic yeah. as well. So, yeah. Great. I'll listen to that one as well. <laughs> uh, unrelated question, but um, to satisfy my curiosity, and I'm sure a lot of people out there wonder the same. You won a Grammy in 2012 for your best album of the year um, for your work with Mumford and Sons. How much did that impact your career? It had a great impact, really. Um, and I think the main thing was that it opens up a kind of a world in terms of American projects, US projects, that um, that otherwise, you know, I was kind of invisible to or, or not part of. So like, I think literally the week after the phone started to ring with projects that I'm pretty sure would never have come my way if it hadn't have been for that. So it flings open doors that were never opened before. So yeah, it had pretty positive impact mm -hmm. in that sense. I never thought about it like this in terms of the US. How do you find actually working with US clients versus European and UK clients? Do you find a big difference? The American market, is it a different world? Well, it's a huge market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard to sort of talk about it all as being one thing because mm -hmm. obviously there's multiple genres and styles and people within it. But my experience has always been really positive. I've always really enjoyed working with American clients and American labels and American artists. There is a positivity that they have, which is a bit infectious, and you kind of <laughs> kind of help yeah. but be kind of pulled along with it. You know, sometimes our kind of slightly more cynical uh, sort of Irish and, <laughs> and British approach, the understatement sort of aspect of, of our character is not always kind of understood. American clients so you kind of got to get with it <laughs> and be all like yeah man whoop whoop love it yeah <laughs> so but no I, I really enjoy working with American artists it's always been positive mm -mm. and I think you know in terms of engineer stuff that I get sent to mix from the US generally is really well recorded mm. it's not unusual to get a session from an American engineer or producer where the drum mics might be four mics or five mics, you know, there's the kick, there's the snare, there's two room mics, and a thumper, you know, or whatever. You know, they're, they're, they're great at kind of just really condensing down what, what they need and what they want to give you. 
I find that with a few things, you know, the Shawn Mendes record was like that, that I mixed, you know, it was like really kind of well constructed and put together. Um, so brilliant. Like there's a great professionalism about American projects that I've, that I've always really enjoyed and kind of, you know, and I think they're, they're less afraid. I think in the UK, there's a tendency to want to always be edgy, to push the boundaries a little bit, to be bolder. Whereas the American dudes and dudesses sometimes will be more like, yeah, love it. You know, they're, they're not afraid to let a record just sound beautiful and kind of lovely. And, you know, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. Um, could you also tell us a little bit about the Dolby Atmos setup that you have that is new from this year? I know you, you like to explore and stay current and you were very keen and excited to try Dolby Atmos and now you've worked on the back catalogue of George Michael. How has your experience been? How do you think you're going to incorporate that new format in your workload? Well, yeah, it was great to be able to jump into that format with the George albums that we were that we were working on. There was something very nice about learning a completely new thing because it is completely new. There's there's quite a few hoops that we had to jump through to get that working, to kind of figure out how to get it working in our room, you know, working properly, uh, getting the room set up as well, you know, just like physically kind of getting the speakers placed right and all of that. You know, it's kind of fun. You're it's kind of going back to being an engineer again a little bit. So I kind of enjoyed that aspect to it. But once we kind of got through all the sort of technicalities of it, then the actual process of mixing and listening to those tracks in Dolby Atmos was beautiful. You know, it was lovely. And uh, the reaction that we got from people coming in and listening to those Atmos mixes was always really positive. People just loved it. it there was always like a physical thing that pe people would come in and you'd sort of press play and they'd sort of almost automatically close their eyes and, and throw their head back, you know, and actually listen which isn't always the case when you play someone a two-track mix in a studio, they usually kind of are sort of half distracted. Whereas the Atmos thing, people want to be lost in it a little bit. But what happens once it leaves this room, you know, how it gets kind of presented at the other end is a bit more, there's a bit more of a kind of question mark around that, what, you know, what the punters are going to actually hear. But I think you know, the same way you do a two-track mix and you're not just wondering how good it sounds on your barefoots, you know, you want to know that it sounds good in the car. You want to know that it's going to sound good in the radio. You want to know that it's going to sound good on your kid's iPod speakers or whatever. So it's the same thing with, with the Atmos thing. You've got to make sure that it works on all the various formats that it will end up in. But, you know, the point is that it's people are interested in it. You know, they want to engage with it. So, yeah, you know, hopefully it's an exciting format that we can all enjoy more in the future. It will definitely come gradually remembering, like, that people when stereo happened they were just like oh no we only want to listen to mono mixes <laughs> like what is stereo and they were quite shocked yeah. so maybe Dolby Atmos is just we're, we're living in that area that yeah. Dolby Atmos is do yeah it's just going to happen around us whether we kind of realize it or not obviously Sky and Sony and the, you know they're all releasing kind of hardware TVs and soundbars that have the, mm -hmm. the Atmos facility built into it so what we need to do as engineers is just make sure that the content that is being fed into that is, is good. And there's a danger that it's been just all knocked out and not really kind of very much attention paid to the, the quality of it. So hopefully, you know, the quality control will stand up to it and be worthy. 
but it's certainly like if you put that time in and you really understand it it sounds sounds incredible yeah i really encourage whoever is listening to to that here whether you're an engineer or just you like music and you're not in the industry try it it's actually quite interesting to hear that um so i highly encourage people to to try and get familiar with it and get your own opinion about it mm. and there's also then that thing of like doing something more creative with it you know at the moment all that we've done so far has sort of been fairly safe in terms of recreating older records and you know remixing them in this immersive thing whereas if you're starting from scratch there's so much more you can do Mm. with it right so there's a lot of fun to be had (laughs) exciting times ahead folks Mm. um there's um one of the last points that i want to discuss with you is close to heart because this podcast is aiming to encourage more women and gender minorities to speak up and talk about their experiences in the music industry. And because you've been in the industry for 30 years and worked in big studios, etc., have you seen those inequalities? Have you seen progress? How do you think um, male mixing engineers or engineers like you can bring a positive change in the industry? Well, I think there's definitely been a change in the industry. You know, when I started in the early 90s, we were coming off the back of the 70s and 80s, where, you know, it was pretty much a fairly chauvinist world that we were sort of coming out of. But it has moved on a lot since then. Um, The studios that I worked in, there was always some female assistants and engineers, but it'd be maybe one out of 10. If even that, you know, but it was it's not that unusual. You know, there's always been women involved in the music industry and, and, and in the studio industry. There seems to be more of a push to sort of encourage it now, which is great. It's, it's, it's in my experience, it's only ever been a positive thing. It's only ever brought a, a nicer kind of balance to, to the room. So I kind of find it hard to believe that there's anyone in this day and age that would kind of have a problem with having a woman in the studio. It can happen, and I do think there are still people out there who are discriminating, but if I can say something, those people are not worth working for. Well, exactly. A big part of it you were saying earlier on about kind of getting on with people and making connections or whatever, you know, you're going to be in a room with someone for 14 hours a day. You have to get on, you know, so you're only ever going to get on with people that are, you know, you're going to have a fairly similar kind of way of thinking about things. I could, it makes no difference really at the end of the day. You know, if you, if it's something that you're interested in, if it's something that you're passionate about, if it's something that you're good at, then you, you'll find your way into it. I don't think, I'm not, I'm not kind of saying that there isn't things there that can't be kind of improved upon or whatever, but I'd be more encouraging about someone and saying there's nothing to hold you back from, there's nothing to stop you from going for it and don't think that there is, don't think that there's some big obstacle there because you're, not a guy. <laughs> <laughs> you call me a guy all the time anyway. Because She's I'm a... <laughs> my guy. <laughs> well, that was our, our, our American friend say, what's you, you know, have you got a guy? I say, yeah, I got a guy. She's called Elise. <laughs> <laughs> Rory, are you ready for uh, the last question? Oh, and I'm it's the sure. most important one. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to explain the name of the podcast because this is our first episode. So the podcast is called The Music Tricked Me. I was with my housemate in the kitchen and she was telling me this story. She's always been singing. She, she loves music. And when she was a kid, she, she was singing all the time. And she said, you know that song, Praise You, about Five Boy Slim? 
I was trying to sing along and the vocals were going on forever. I was seven. She said like, yeah, it was released when I was seven. And I was just like, raise you like a shoot. And she was trying to hold her breath. How did you do that? And she said, that's the first time the music tricked me. Right. Is there any song, records, artist that makes you go, what? How, how, how did they do this? Um, not so much how did they do it. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, I think Daft Punk were pretty amazing for that mm. kind of thing. You know, some of those early Daft Punk records you listen to and go, wow, like, how did they do that? What's <laughs> going on there? You know, they're brilliant records. And another band that I kind of remember the first time I heard Flaming Lips. Oh, yeah. I just was like, wow, I need to try and listen to more of that and try and understand what the heck is going on there. You know, they I just I love the, the sort of originality of those records. There's something about the, the sort of on paper they almost shouldn't work you know it shouldn't hold together but somehow in the midst of this sort of chaos there's just kind of it's just this really beautiful thing so there's a bit of a trick going on there Dave Friedman <laughs> yes and the, you know he produced and recorded those records he's up to some sort of tricky trickery and I don't know what it is there's a couple of so articles he, that I've read tricky. about him yes yes <laughs> what about your uh, one of your favourite bands Prefab Sprite Oh, I love Prefab oh, Sprite. Oh, they yeah. use like... Uh, well, I mean, I think you know, I kind of discovered Prefab Sprite when I was about 15 and loved them. And maybe in a way, the Sprites were maybe, or, you know, that that record, um, Steve McQueen, that was the first record that I, that I listened to and I thought, uh, I became aware of a studio. I became aware of the idea of there being a producer, someone that kind of manipulated those sounds to make it sound like sort of magical. So that's definitely another one of those records. Steve McQueen, Prefab Sprite, mm -hmm. the first one. Maybe. Oh, it's amazing. Um, probably the last thing that we should tell our listeners as well. It's not really a trick, but it kind of like blew both our minds at the same time. We're listening to Michael Jackson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that shaker, is it on Billie Jean? It, it is on Billie Jean, yes. <laughs> it's like sort of a record that you've been listening to all your life. And then you listen to it in the studio on a pair of NS10s and you realize the shaker is like 10 dB louder than the vocal. <laughs> and you think, how did they get away with that? There's no way these days that that would be approved. But Quincy Jones, in his obvious kind of brilliance, was like, nah, nah, turn the shaker up. Turn it up. More shaker. <laughs> and, it, you know, it didn't do that record any harm. Well, I'm glad we can leave our listeners with that and with more uh, music that they can discover if they haven't listened to Daft Punk or Prefab's Rights or they can really listen to Billie Jean and be like, damn, they were right, the shaker is so loud and now they will hate us for like having mentioned We've ruined that, that record for so many people. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rory. Uh, it was really great to talk to you. It's been really insightful. I appreciate your time. Great. And um, I wish you all the best with your upcoming projects. Likewise. <laughs> Thanks. Okay.